advertising experts have a simple strategy to lure us all in. It's simply this. They want to identify some kind of problem. They want to convince us that it's our problem, and then they want to provide a solution with their product. This makes sense, right? I saw this strategy on perfect display in a movie theater recently. A commercial came on for Mini Cooper, the car. And according to this commercial, according to these advertisers, there's a problem with my life. It's that I live a normal life. In other words, my life is lame. Now, I know that my life is lame. I didn't need this commercial to tell me that. This commercial starts off with this very uninteresting, very dull music. They're trying to convince me already that my life is lame. Then they flash mundane images of my existence before me. And then this narrator slowly talks using words like comfortable and average and familiar. And then he poses a question that drives straight into my heart. Who would ever want to live a normal life? And I'm thinking, I don't want to live a normal life. It's working on me. And then it shifts. The tone changes of the commercial. And suddenly there's this amazing, invigorating music. And then there are these images of awesome things going on. Rock concerts and dangerous exploits and kissing, which, by the way, I do plenty of in my lame life. Thank you very much. He says things like, this life is great and fantastic and amazing. The problem, we have a tendency to live lame lives. My specific problem, my life is lame. And the solution, buy a Mini Cooper? I'm not convinced. You know, my problem, the problem with us, what's our problem? That question can't be answered by buying a small car. In Genesis chapter 3 specifically, in the Bible we find an explanation to the question, what's our problem? And if we take it seriously, it's quite sobering. This is the second part of a, of a message series called In the Beginning. We're looking at the first 12 chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Last week we explored creation and we had specific emphasis on the creation of human beings. And this week we're considering the fall. Some sermon texts and some sermon topics are uplifting and encouraging, and they give you a warm, ooey-gooey feeling inside. This isn't one of them. Now, you know that's the case, and I know that's the case as we're considering the fall of humanity, and so we might be tempted to respond either by getting very defensive about what we're going to be saying today, or, or we could just try to ignore all of the implications of all this, or I've already heard all this before, so I can just check out. Instead, let me just suggest that we should listen carefully, we should really engage fully in reading Genesis 3 to see what it has to say. Uh, specifically, I want to look at four answers to the question, what's gone wrong, and my hope is to show that the account of the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 makes more sense of the twisted state of our lives than any other explanation available. Now, to get us started, I'm going to read a big chunk of the chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I would encourage you to follow along in your own Bible or to follow along on the screen. And also to take out your outline so you can jot some notes down. You'll find that in the weekly welcome. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Let's get acquainted with this story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the, Lord, the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Four answers to the question, what's gone wrong? Here's the first one. We're morally corrupted. We're morally corrupted. Now, I'm guessing that lots of questions are running through your mind as we encounter this passage. Several questions came to my mind as well, like, who is this serpent? In verse 1, we're told that this serpent is made. The serpent is created by God. It's one of these animals. And in other places of the Bible, we find indications that the serpent is Satan. And so noting that this serpent was created by God pushes back against a popular notion that God and Satan are in some kind of cosmic battle between equals. But this is simply not the case. The serpent is created. We're also told in verse 1 that the serpent is crafty. This is a word that can be used both positively and negatively, but because we've just seen how his craftiness is put to use, we know that it's negative here. He is a crafty serpent. Now, here's another question that came to my mind. What's the deal with the tree? You know, this is an object that all of the action is surrounding this tree, and so we have to get a good handle on this. To do so, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. God made Adam, and he planted this garden, and then this is what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, this is where the train goes off the tracks for some people. Now, two objections come to mind. The first is that this command of God seems irrational and random. I mean, what's the big deal about a tiny piece of fruit on a tree? That leads directly to the second objection. Some people think that this punishment for breaking God's command is too severe. I mean, seriously, God? If I eat this tiny piece of fruit, I'm going to die? Really? God, God have you ever heard of a proportional response before? This is an arbitrary command. This is a too severe a punishment. Those objections are raised. Now, it seems to me that these objections come from a place of missing the point, missing one really big thing, and that's God. Now, here's what I mean by this. If you're reading Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you come to verses 15 to 17, you have no reason to quibble. Because what we've learned about God in Genesis 1 and 2 
is that he initiates everything in creation. We saw this last week. He is amazing. He is powerful. And everything that God does, he does really well. Or to use the phraseology from Genesis 1 and 2, he does really good. God is incredible. Everything that he does is good. And so why would we think when we come to Genesis 2, 15 to 17, that this command of God isn't good? This doesn't fit into the category of the good things that a good God does. But then secondly, to object that this penalty is too severe is to miss the point that God is the one who gives life. And so when we disconnect from the God who gives life, we have no life. Both of these objections seem to me to indicate our own desire to rebel against God, just like Adam and Eve desired to rebel against God, than what these chapters actually say. If Adam and Eve break this command, it's not going to be God's fault. It will be a willful rebellion on their part, and that willful rebellion is going to demonstrate a desire for autonomy, or to use a biblical word, idolatry. I will be my own God. Now, this is exactly what happens, but I'm always struck by how it happens. You know, the serpent begins with interrogation. He asks the question, did God really say? Some form of this question has been asked for centuries. Did your parents really say no alcohol? Is my, is my boss really watching my hours that carefully, how I'm, how I'm dealing with these finances that carefully? Is it really true that if I engage in this conversation with this person, it might turn into some kind of emotional or sexual affair? Interrogation then leads to exaggeration. You know, he says, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve follows suit with her own subtle exaggeration, after which the serpent advances to outright contradiction. You're not going to die. And finally, he goes in for the kill with deception. You're going to be like God. The wording here is very interesting. You you might remember from Genesis chapter 1 that human beings are made in the image of God, and here the serpent tempts tempts them with the thought that they could be like God. He subtly injects the thought that God has been holding out on them. Being in his image, being in the image of God isn't enough for you. You could be like him. And so Adam and Eve, taking this amazing thing that God's given them, everything they could possibly need, they give it up to gain nothing. You could be like God. The serpent's promise does come to fruition in one sense, After they eat from the tree, they do have the knowledge of good and evil, but that's because they've become evil. They know it from the inside. They're experiencing it. They're morally corrupted. And this moral corruption, then, is on display in the episodes that follow. Verses 7 through 10 highlight shame and hiding and fear. These are words that you do not find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. There's actually this interesting foreshadowing. At the end of chapter 2, verse 25, we see this. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It's a direct foreshadowing to what happens in 3-7 when they eat and then their eyes are opened and they experience shame. They had perfect harmony and now it's all shattered. They hide from God. This is an amazing part of the story for me. I actually chuckle most of the time when I think about this one. 
You probably do too, because Adam and Eve are trying to figure out what to do, and they decide that they're going to hide themselves from one another with fig leaves. That's a great plan. And then, better, they're going to hide from God. Hey, Eve, come here. We're going to hide from God. Are you nuts? What are they thinking? Honestly, I don't think they're thinking at all because that's not what we do when we're motivated by fear. We just act. We just want to hide because we're afraid. That's what all of us do. It's a human response. We run and we hide. This is probably an appropriate spot to just stop the story and just kind of bring all of the onlookers in and just say, hey, are you hiding anything? We can chuckle at Adam and Eve and their silliness for hiding, but we continue to do the exact same thing. Are you hiding anything? Do you think you're getting away with it from God? Do you think that this isn't going to get exposed somehow, that it doesn't need to be brought out into the light? Stop hiding stuff. Bring it out into the light. By verse 10, Adam and Eve are mentally and emotionally distorted, they're twisted by their rebellious attempt to de-God God, and by implication, so are all of us. So the first answer to the question, what's gone wrong, is we're morally corrupted. Here's the second one. Number two, we're relationally disjointed. Relationally disjointed. How many of you have a computer? How many of you have a printer? How many of you can get these two things to talk to one another? Not an easy task, right? The relationship between my computer and my printer causes me a great deal of stress in my life. Because I hit the print button on the screen, and then I have to like turn to my printer and plead like a good marriage counselor for these things to get on the same page. I don't know anything about wireless technology. I just want this stinking thing to print. I hate when things don't work the way that they're meant to work. That's exactly what we see happen in the relational disjointing that takes place. The consequences for Adam and Eve, for their sinful rebellion, one of the key things is that the, relationship in their, the relationships in their lives are now going to be disjointed. They're not going to work properly. God lays out these consequences first for the serpent and then for Eve and finally for Adam. And we're going to look at these in some detail in just a moment. But I think it's important to note from the start that each of these consequences seems to be tailored to specific aspects of their identity. So in broad brushstrokes, Eve's punishments strike at the heart of her relational identity, and Adam's punishments strike at the heart of his task-driven identity. Now, I'm not suggesting that these are gender-exclusive punishments, but I am suggesting that God tailors these things to the priorities of women and men. And another way to say this is that at the place of our greatest joy, there will now also be tremendous pain. And this is the punishment strategy of every single parent. You remove the thing that brings joy because it's being abused in some way, right? So, so if I'm going to take away your cell phone privileges, I'm going to take away your uh, toy privileges, your video game privileges, your hangout with friends privileges, this is striking at the very heart of identity. And so it's like, you wouldn't take away my iPod. At the place of greatest joy, we're going to experience tremendous pain. This is exactly what we see happen for Eve in Genesis 3.16. Take a look at the text. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
First thing with repetition is that there's going to be increased pain for Eve in having kids, and women everywhere groan. And in particular, my halfway through pregnancy wife groans. What's supposed to be undiluted joy is now mixed up with all sorts of pain. It's disjointed. Secondly, Eve is going to experience tension with her husband. Look at the text one more time in your Bible. This could be a bit puzzling. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. you know, what, what is God talking about here? Well, the key word is the word desire. In what way is Eve going to desire Adam? Well, we're helped in kind of sorting this puzzle out by looking at the surrounding context. In chapter 4, verse 7, the same word is used when God warns Cain that sin desires to have him. Sin desires to control Cain, to master him, to force him to carry out its purposes. And so here in Genesis 3.16, Eve's sin-corrupted desire is going to be to control her husband. But Adam's not going to respond well to that. In fact, he's going to rule over her in a domineering way. He's going to power up. They're relationally disjointed. Now, interestingly, we've already seen this fracture in their relationship earlier in the chapter. Take a look again at verses 11 through 13. They sin and God is on the lookout for them because they're hiding from him. And he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And in a stellar move, the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some, some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Classic blame game. They're so disjointed already. The contrast of this episode, these verses, with what happens at the end of chapter 2 is absolutely incredible. There, Adam is singing, literally singing with delight over his wife. They are in perfect harmony, experiencing perfect intimacy emotionally and physically and sexually. It's amazing. And here, Adam throws her under the bus... And then he's so disjointed that he even begins to blame God. You put her here with me. And this is a mess. If you're ever wondering why relationships are sometimes so difficult, and the marriage relationship in particular at times, it's because of this. Miscommunication, accusations, lack of trust. Power struggles in relationships, all of its sources from this moment in Genesis chapter 3. And on this side of heaven, this is our lot. So the next time that you're in a relationship conflict, some kind of conversation or situation that's extremely tense, you can just kind of stop the conversation and say, hey, hey, I've got an explanation for this. You're a mess. <laughs> and just see how that goes for you. Seriously, though, if we take the fall seriously, we do have some resources for dealing with, at least to ourselves, explaining to ourselves what's gone wrong with this whole thing, why this is so difficult for us. It's because we're relationally disjointed. It's not working properly. Our place of greatest joy is mixed up with our experiences of pain. That's number two. Number three, we're missionally frustrated. Some of you are wondering if missionally is a word. It's not. 
But I've taken all four of Pastor Jim's phrases to describe humanity in creation from last week, and I've flipped them and used them as modifiers to describe the effects of the fall. All four of those wonderful things are now distorted. And so we're left here with the word missionally. We're missionally frustrated. I've already noted that the consequences for Adam relate to his work life. Look at verses 17 through 19. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You might be surprised by some of our sources for good theology. A little-known band actually caught the theme of these verses a whole bunch of years ago. The Rolling Stones, and I'm serious, got this one right in their song saying, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because four times now together, I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. Thank you, Mick Jagger. From the Rolling Stones then to the pages of Scripture, look at a couple of these verses, a couple of these phrases that highlight our lack of satisfaction. Adam is told by God that this God-given task, his very work, is now going to be accompanied by painful toil and by the sweat of your brow. There are also two interesting phrases that are parallel in these verses. In verse 17, God notes that this toil is going to last all the days of your life. And then in verse 19, God says that he'll be sweating until you return to the ground. Adam, and by implication all people, will now be frustrated in God's gift of work. We will toil and sweat and toil and sweat and toil and sweat. And this is going to happen over and over and over and over again until we enter the ground that will eat us, the ground from which we eat. This is futility without many rewards. This is striving and striving, but never feeling fully satisfied. It's missional frustration. We're frustrated. Can you relate to this in your work life? Some of us, our life's work is extremely satisfying, but it's not completely satisfying like it was meant to be. It's mixed up with all sorts of frustration. And to compound this fact... The entire created order isn't even working properly. This rebellion didn't affect just Adam and Eve. It it introduced a limp into the entire created order. Listen in the New Testament to how the Apostle Paul puts this in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and following. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The entire creation is frustrated, it's in bondage to decay, it is groaning in pain. Back in our chapter, Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the ground, which represents the sphere over which Adam was to rule, is cursed. And this curse is expressed through thorns and thistles and death rather than life. So here, in the account of the fall of humanity, we're introduced to disease 
and to disaster, to tragedy and death because everything is out of whack and these external forces are going to wreak havoc on humanity as it tries to carry out its mission in a God-honoring way. Everything is broken. Being a pastor allows me a context for seeing a lot of this stuff up close and personal. Disaster and tragedy and death. A lot of it's oftentimes intertwined. I was just told recently that a friend of mine is going to be having a baby boy, and this baby boy already in the womb has a congenital heart defect. In the first week of his life, he'll have surgery, and that will introduce him to surgeries that will take place over the next several years. How many people in our church are struggling, battling with various diseases and all sorts of pains? Disease. Disaster, tsunamis and tornadoes and earthquakes and meteors striking the earth. I led a team of high school students several years ago down to New Orleans after Katrina and saw the devastation with my own eyes. It was absolutely unreal. Disaster. Tragedy, our church has been rocked by various tragedies along with the broader world. And I've sat with some of those families and shared in some of that pain. And then death itself. We all know that death is coming. We all know we'll be affected by it. But when we're personally affected by it, it's very difficult to make sense out of it all. I've participated in the funerals of young people and old people, and it is awful. It just rips us apart. Just a couple days ago, we were praying in our staff prayer time, and we were asked to pray about these kinds of things, disease and disaster and death and tragedy. And we all, we all spent time praying, and when we got done, I looked up, and there were not many eyes of our team that weren't wet with tears, wiping them away because it is so broken. This is not the way that it was supposed to be. Sin, capital S, what we see here in Genesis 3 is the culprit because it's distorted the entire created order. We're just frustrated. We're missionally frustrated. We're morally corrupted. We're relationally disjointed and we're missionally frustrated. Here's number four. We're spiritually alienated. We go from heavy to heavier to heavier and now to heaviest. This final section of verses, verses 21 to 24, are the climax to this episode, and they are rough. And so to give us a little bit of a break from heavy, I just want to engage your imagination for just a moment, okay? And you're going to need your imagination for this because you can't imagine that this could have ever happened. I want to introduce you to a fictional person named Jameson and to a fictional person named Rachel. She happens to be my wife. When I met Rachel, we started to kind of engage with each other in a friendship, and eventually I sort of indicated that I liked her, and then it's debated, but at some point in this time, she says that I actually used the big L word, that I loved her. And so we're moving in a direction in this kind of relationship, it's not really defined yet, and then one day I met another girl, and so I completely shut Rachel out and started dating her. Awesome. Six months later, <laughs> six months later, Imagine that this could happen. I broke up with that girl and I called Rachel back the next day. And so she hesitantly allowed me to get back into her life only to have some similar experiences from this fictional chucklehead named Jameson. Now, question. Who is the offended party in this story? Rachel is, right? It's obvious that Rachel's the offended party in this story. Now, question. Maybe a little bit less obvious. 
Who is the offended party in Genesis chapter 3? Don't answer out loud. Think about it for a moment. A lot of us are prone to assume that Adam and Eve are the offended party in this story. You know, because we feel bad for Adam and Eve. We can identify with them. You know, they've got this burdensome command from God. They got duped by the serpent. They get this truckload of consequences laid upon them. And then, as we'll see in a moment, they get kicked out of the garden. I feel bad for Adam and Eve. Are they the offended party in this story? No. To think that Adam and Eve are the offended party in this story is to put all of the blame on God, to put all of the responsibility on God's shoulders. But God is actually the offended party here. God has been nothing but generous and gracious and good to Adam and Eve, and in response, his authority is questioned, and then he's blamed for all of the problems. Adam and Eve walked out on him when they rebelled against him. What they did was to initiate spiritual alienation, and when we side with them, when we join in the cry that God isn't fair, we demonstrate that we're spiritually alienated too. We truly do identify with them. The worst consequences for Adam and Eve come in these verses, the following, the following verses, 21 through 24. Take a look. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like, like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Circle the word banished in your Bible. I think this phrase, so the Lord God banished him, must be one of the saddest in the entire Bible. Adam and Eve previously shared intimacy with their good, generous, and gracious creator God. We get a hint of this kind of intimacy when, when the author refers to, to God walking in the garden in the cool of the day to be with them. And now here he expels them from that very garden. This is where the death sentence begins. Readers have been puzzled by the fact that Adam and Eve didn't die the second that they, they ate from the tree, the second they disobeyed God. Some people think then that this indicates that the serpent was right after all. They weren't really going to die. But what they experience is much worse than immediate physical death. This separation from God, this alienation, this broken relationship with their maker is a slow death, spiritually speaking, before the final death, a physical returning to the dust. And this, at core, at bottom, is the basic, most fundamental answer to the question, what's gone wrong? We're alienated from God because of our willful rebellion. We're alienated from him. But... And we have been waiting to hear that word the entire time. Genesis 3 doesn't only give us four answers to the question, what's gone wrong? It also points us in a direction, even so briefly, of grace. God's grace. God is gracious and he's good and he's generous, and we've seen it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we see it in Genesis 3 and 4 and 5 and all the way through the end of the Bible to Revelation 22. God's grace shows up here. It's grace upon grace. He doesn't treat sin lightly as we've seen, but he extends grace 
to Adam and Eve briefly in two ways. The first is that he clothes them. He removes these lame fig leaves and he replaces them with animal skins. God protects them as he sends them out. And secondly, he makes a promise. Take a look at Genesis 3.15. God says this in his curse on the serpent. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you, he will crush your head, excuse me, and you will strike his heel. God is saying that one day Eve's offspring, a human, is going to destroy Satan, even though that human is going to be severely wounded. And this is exactly what happens pages and pages later when Jesus dies on the cross. The serpent tried to destroy us by leading us into sin, sin that would separate us, alienate us from God by bringing about our death. But Jesus willingly died our death. His sacrifice becomes a gift for those who put their trust in him. Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Satan struck his heel, but Jesus crushed his head, just as Genesis 3.15 said. God's promise comes true. And that is really good news in the midst of a chapter of really bad news. I love that. Yeah. Genesis 3 makes it really clear that we're morally corrupted, we're relationally disjointed, we're missionally frustrated, and we're spiritually alienated. But it also points in the direction that the the following chapters of Genesis are going to take us. So I want to encourage you to stand with me now. And we're going to pray. And as you do, I'm going to hand things over to our campus pastors. I don't know what kinds of things are tilled up in your life when we spend this amount of time talking about sin and pointing out all of its various facets. But if it's the case that there's something overwhelming inside of you that you need to get prayed for, that you need to confess to someone or to pray with someone, please do so. Please allow the grief, the overwhelming weight of this to move you to do something, to pray, to confess. Our team is going to be on the sides, our prayer team. Those members will be joining over there in a minute, and you can go pray with them. Let's pray now together. Father, we thank you for these words in Genesis 3 because we recognize that you, you don't sweep sin under the carpet, and you don't want us to do it in our lives And I pray, God, that the grief of staring at these things and recognizing ourselves in the mirror of your word would cause us to pursue you, to seek you, to find grace from you in Jesus. We thank you for your word and its effectiveness in our lives to point things out and to draw us to you. We pray that would be the case. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.